Good morning. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 15. For those of you just joining us this morning, we're in the midst of a sermon series going through the whole book of Genesis, and so we're dropping in on the second half of chapter 15 this morning, and I'm going to read verses 7 through the end of the chapter. Holy Scripture says, And he said to him, the Lord is speaking to Abram, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is God's holy word, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, we, we plead for showers of blessing. We pray that you would revive our hearts, transform our lives, pour us out in service to the Lord Jesus Christ that his glory and renown might be made known in western Maine and throughout New England and beyond. We pray that you would continue to draw many people into your family. Be with us now. Teach us by the Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin by focusing our attention on verse 18, where it says, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. The Hebrew word translated make literally means to cut off or to cut down. The Lord cut a covenant with Abram. The the cutting of a covenant goes beyond the simple declaration of a promise. The declaration of a promise is essential to covenant making, but covenant making solemnizes the promise 
in a special act that confirms and seals the promise. When a man and woman enter into the covenant of marriage, they do not simply make promises to each other in private conversation. Instead, there is a publicly recognizable act of covenant making under the direction of a wedding officiant. The intentions of bride and groom are made clear. Their vows are exchanged in the presence of witnesses, followed by a public declaration that the groom and bride are now man and wife. After this public declaration and joyous celebration, the man and wife then give their own necessary confirmation to that public covenant-making act by actually dwelling together and consummating their marriage. So what what covenant-making does is it, it takes promises and solidifies them into the form of a solemn pledge that actually creates a new relationship and a new set of responsibilities. Making a covenant etches the promises in stone. Covenant cutting sets the promises in concrete. Further, covenant cutting makes promises a matter of life and death, which is why the Lord's covenant-making act in Genesis chapter 15 involves a heifer, goat, and ram cut in two, bloody and dead. The Lord's covenant with Abram is sealed in blood. Remember, covenant-making doesn't just involve promises, it solidifies them. So notice, if you go back a few chapters, the Lord has been making promises to Abram all along, right? Genesis 12, 2, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Genesis 12, 7, to your offspring I will give this land, the land of Canaan. Genesis 13, verses 15 and 16. All the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Genesis 15, 4. Your very own son shall be your heir. Genesis 15, 5. Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your offspring be. These promises are repeated or at least implied with some additional details given in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 to 21. But it would be a mistake to think that the Lord is simply repeating the promises with additional detail. What is actually happening in these verses is that the Lord is stating His promises within the framework of a sacred life-and-death covenant-cutting act which serves to solidify the promises and make it clear to Abram and to us that the Lord's words are not idle words. We live in a world of idle words, forked tongues, flattering and deceptive speech, twisted meanings, broken promises, evasive and disingenuous answers, manipulative verbal power plays. In contrast, The Lord takes His own words with absolute seriousness, and His will is that you take His words with absolute seriousness too. It says in Isaiah 66, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. 
He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. In order to help Abram tremble at God's word, God instructed Abram to bring a sacrifice of blood. And in order to help us tremble at God's word, what God instructed Abram to do was written down for our benefit so that we're pondering it here this morning. Then experiencing proper solemnity with the slain animals in clear view, we are then ready to hear the promises of God and to discern the presence of God passing in the midst of the sacrifice. So let me tell you where we're going this morning, okay? I'm going to unpack this this passage in four parts. The preamble to the covenant, verse 7, the question that the covenant answers in verse 8, the sacrifice of the covenant, verses 9 to 11, and then the ratification of the covenant in verses 12 to 21. So let's begin in verse 7, where the Lord speaks forth the preamble to the covenant. And the Lord said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. This preamble to the Abrahamic covenant is similar to the preamble to the Ten Commandments. And the preamble to the Ten Commandments is the first word that eventually leads to the covenant ratification ceremony of Exodus chapter 24. But the preamble is in Exodus chapter 20, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Do you hear the, do you hear the, the, the echoes? The Lord is the one who brings his people out. He brought Abram out from Ur of the Chaldeans. He brought Israel out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Lord brings his people out of the land of idolatry or out of the land of slavery and affliction in order that we might serve him in the place that he has appointed for us. The Lord is sovereign over our rescue, redemption, relocation, purpose, and destiny. The sovereign Lord is the one who enters into covenant with his people. Our desire in life must not be to call our own shots. Instead, our desire in life ought to be to discern God's call, to hear God calling us out of the darkness, and to follow the one who leads us into the light. After the preamble, we come to the question that the covenant answers Uh, After the preamble, but before the sacrifice and ratification, Abram asks a question. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it, possess the land? One of the predominant themes in Genesis chapters 12 to 15 is the promise of land. The Lord has made it clear that he is giving the land of Canaan to Abram and to Abram's offspring. This theme resurfaced in the preamble, right? I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. The Lord's intention and promise is clear. The king of heaven and earth is bestowing a land grant to Abram and to Abram's descendants. But the the promise is not yet realized. For one thing, Abram has no offspring yet. The promise will be fulfilled at some future time. So Abram, who in verses 5 and 6, which we looked at last week, he believed the divine promise that he would have offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven. Now 
Abram wants assurance that he will actually come to possess the land. How am I to know? Does that question remind you of another question that occurs later in the Scriptures? In Luke chapter 1, God sent the angel Gabriel to tell Zechariah that he and his wife would in their old age have a son. And after hearing the promise, Zechariah replied, How shall I know this? Luke 1.18. In Zechariah's case, the angel chided him for his unbelief. But even so, Zechariah did receive an answer to his question. He would be unable to speak for the next ten months until the promise was fulfilled. And indeed, when his son John was born, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he blessed God. We should use our mouth to bless the Lord, not to question him. That said, the Lord is gracious to us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. That's from Psalm 103. The Lord does not deal harshly with his frail people. The Lord doesn't discount us because of our weakness. Instead, the Lord takes our fragility and immaturity into account, and he shows us great patience as he forms us into the people that he wants us to be and as he unfolds his purposes in our lives. One very sensible reply to Abram's question would have been, Abram, you are to know that you shall possess the land in the very same way that you know that your offspring shall be as numerous as the stars in heaven by simply believing the Lord's word. That's what Abram did in verse 6, right? And he believed the Lord. Why shouldn't Abram exercise the same faith when he hears the Lord say, I brought you out to give you this land to possess. Nothing is more certain and reliable than the Word of God. And God's Word is the solid basis of our knowledge about God and about God's work in the world. For some reason, though, Abram wants something more than the words that the Lord has already spoken to him. Abram wants some proof or some sign that will function as a guarantee that what the Lord has promised will surely come to pass. Although Abram might well have been chided for his unbelief in the sufficiency of the words of God that were already spoken to him, nevertheless, the Lord decided to address Abram's question. The Lord answers the question in such a way that the sufficiency of his word is reinforced. And that's what covenants do. Covenants do not detract from the sufficiency of promises, but rather they solidify those promises, and in this case, they are solidified in blood. And so that brings us to the sacrifice of the covenant in verses 9 to 11. Abram's question has set the stage for the covenant to be made. Sacrifice is key to the formation of this covenant. The Lord addresses Abram's question by first instructing him to bring a sacrifice. Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon, three livestock and two birds. These animals cover the gamut of animals that were commonly sacrificed to the Lord in the Old Testament. For example, Leviticus chapter 1 gives instructions about the burnt offerings. Israelites could bring a bull, a male cow from the herd, or a sheep or goat from the flock, or a turtle dove or pigeon from among the birds. 
Here in Genesis chapter 15, all five animals are represented. A heifer, a female cow, a female goat, a ram, a male sheep or male goat, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. The fact that the Lord tells Abram to bring all five of those animals points to the fact that something especially important is about to take place. In obedience to the Lord's instruction, Abram brought all these, verse 10, he brought them to the Lord, and we may presume that the Lord gave Abram additional instruction about what to do with the animals, but the text itself goes on to report what Abram did. Abram cut them in half, verse 10, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Do you get the picture? What we have here is a sacrifice that has been made in the presence of the Lord and placed before him. So there's a line, maybe of 15 to 20 feet, and on both sides of the line there are dead animals. The heifer has been cut in two, with one half on the left side and one half on the right. The female goat's been cut in two with one half on the left side and the other half on the right. The ram has been cut in two with one half on the left and the other half on the right. The birds were not cut in half. Presumably one bird was placed on the left and the other on the right. So you've got this line, two rows of slain animals. Another thing that makes, uh, that makes this sacrifice stand out in terms of its importance is the fact that we are specifically told that God initiated it. Think, think about this. Abel sacrificed the firstborn of his flock, Genesis 4.4, and Noah sacrificed animals and birds after the flood, Genesis 8.20. They did that in order to worship the Lord, and the Lord was pleased with their sacrifices. Now, the Lord might have given instruction to Abel and Noah to do what they did, but if he gave them those instructions, they were not written down. We have no record of those instructions. Abram himself was in the habit of building altars to the Lord. We saw that in Genesis 12 and Genesis 13, and I assume that as part of his worship on those altars, he was bringing sacrificial animals and placing them upon the altars. But what makes this sacrifice in Genesis 15 stand out is that the text specifically tells us that God initiated it. It's just another indicator that what's about to happen is really important for us to understand. So the sacrificed animals and birds have been brought to the Lord, but the carcasses came to the attention of some predatorial birds. Abram's job is to drive away the vultures, verse 11. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Whenever predators threaten the integrity of our worship, our job is to drive those predators away. Whenever the equivalent of vultures or wolves or snakes threaten the purity of our worship, our job is to drive them away. With the sacrifice thus made and guarded, the time has finally come for the covenant to be cut. And that brings us to the ratification of the covenant in verses 12 to 21. Remember the words of verse 18. The Lord made a covenant with Abram. Verse 18 does not say that Abram made a covenant with the Lord. Verse 18 does not say that the Lord and Abram made a covenant with each other. What verse 18 says is that the Lord made a covenant with Abram. 
The sovereign Lord is the one making this covenant. The Lord is the covenant maker. And thus it is fitting that the Lord made this covenant with Abram while Abram was sleeping. As the sun was going down, verse 12, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. God does important work while we're sleeping. Do you remember the other time in the early chapters of Genesis when a man fell into a deep sleep? Genesis 2. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. Genesis 2, 21. Adam slept that a woman might be made from him. Abram slept that a covenant might be made with him. The Lord neither slumbers nor sleeps, Psalm 121, verse 4, and he does very important work while man sleeps. Abram fell into a deep sleep so that it might be evident that the covenant is the Lord's doing. The Lord is the active covenant doer. Abram is the passive covenant receiver. As it turns out, deep sleep wasn't the only thing that fell on Abram. We're also told that dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. What does this mean? It's important for us to realize that when the Bible describes what human beings experience when they have a direct encounter with the Lord, it typically does not say things like a gentle afternoon breeze and a delightful sense of sunlight illuminating the foliage forest across the valley came so wonderfully upon him. As if meeting with God is like going on a walk with a familiar friend. Meeting with God is not like going on a walk with a familiar friend because God is not like your familiar friend. He's the Holy One, great and mighty, majestic in holiness, sovereign in the heavens. In Genesis 15, 12, Abram is being drawn into an encounter with the Lord and right off the bat we learn that this encounter is characterized by that which is overwhelming, mysterious, unnerving, fearful, and disorienting. Dreadful and great darkness fell upon Abram. This dreadful and great darkness is a precursor to the Lord revealing the light of knowledge to Abram in verses 13 to 21. And also, just as important, it's a precursor to the Lord revealing his divine presence as a flaming torch in verse 17. At the same time, this dreadful and great darkness befits the subject matter. Affliction, verse 13. Judgment, verse 14. Iniquity, verse 16. And the divine presence passing through the broken pieces of the animal and bird sacrifices, verse 17. The subject matter is heavy, serious, and consequential. And so the Lord is setting the right mood for Abram to hear and see what God is going to say and do. Into this dreadful and great darkness, the Lord speaks to Abram. So he's speaking to Abram in, 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 while he's sleeping, speaking to him in his sleep. Says, the Lord said to Abram, no for certain, verse 13. This speaks directly to Abram's question, how am I to know that I shall possess this land. We haven't gotten to the how yet, but God intends for Abram to have 
certain knowledge and full persuasion that God's promises will surely come to pass. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. God sees into the future that he himself has orchestrated. And he tells Abram that his offspring will reside in a foreign land, which we learn later is Egypt, and will experience servitude and suffer affliction in that foreign land for 400 years. But this servitude and affliction will eventually give way to a great reversal. Verse 14, But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God brings well-deserved judgment whenever and wherever He chooses. And this same God brings undeserved salvation wherever and whenever he chooses. The nation that will enslave and afflict Abram's offspring will be ruined in keeping with the Lord's earlier promise in chapter 12 to curse anyone who dishonors Abram. By contrast, Abram's offspring, though enslaved and afflicted, will be released from their captivity and abundantly supplied by God's free and sovereign grace. Verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Abram will not live to see the many days of suffering that will afflict his descendants, nor will he live to see on the other side of that his descendants actually come in to possess the land. Abram will enjoy peace in his lifetime, and then he will depart from this present world. But long after Abram's body has been laid to rest, God's promise will remain effective and alive. Verse 16, And they, Abram's offspring, shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In this context, generation probably does not carry a narrow meaning like 40 years, but probably refers to a more general time frame that correlates with the 400 years of verse 13. In any case, Abram's offspring will eventually come back to the land of Canaan and occupy the land that God has promised to give to Abram and Abram's offspring forever. Abram is to know these things for certain. He's to have complete confidence that his offspring will possess the land. Now, if someone replies that Abram's question wasn't about his offspring possessing the land, but actually about him possessing the land. I would simply say that in Genesis 12, in Genesis 13, in Genesis 15, a sharp line is not drawn between Abram possessing the land and Abram's offspring possessing the land. The concepts are presented interchangeably, and therefore Abram's question about him possessing the land and the Lord's answer about his offspring possessing the land should not be played off against each other as if they are two different things. They comprise one promise, and Abram is to be fully convinced that the promise stands and shall come to fruition. But how? How is Abram to know that this promise concerning the land will surely come to pass? This brings us to verse 17. In a sense, the most important verse of the passage. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Everything else in this passage now comes to a culminating, decisive, covenant-making 
moment. Only after verse 17 and immediately after verse 17 is the covenant language used. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. The sun was going down in verse 12. Do you remember? Now in verse 17, the sun is down. Great darkness fell upon Abram in verse 12. Now the darkness that had descended upon Abram's soul is accompanied by physical darkness all around. In verse 10, the sacrificed bloody cut-in-half animals along with the slain birds were set in the Lord's presence as a 15 to 20 foot walkway. Two and a half slain animals on one side and two and a half on the other. Now in verse 17, the Lord passes through the pieces of torn animal and bird flesh. There's a strong connection between Genesis 15, 17 and Exodus 19 and 20. I already drew a connection between Genesis 15, 7, the preamble to the Abrahamic covenant, and Exodus 21 and 2, verses 1 and 2, the preamble to the Ten Commandments. This other connection with Exodus 19 and 20 sheds important light on our passage. On that holy day when Israel met with God on Mount Sinai, before God spoke the Ten Commandments, God made himself known in dreadful splendor. Exodus 19 verse 18 says, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. In Exodus 19.18, the word smoke occurs three times and it echoes the smoking fire pot of Genesis 15.17. In Exodus 19.18, the ascending smoke was like the smoke of a kiln. Fire pot and kiln are similar concepts pointing to a smoking oven of one kind or another. Of course, smoke is often associated with fire. In Exodus 19.18, the Lord had descended on Mount Sinai in fire and this echoes the flaming torch the emphasis being on the adjective flaming or burning in Genesis 15, 17. Finally, after God spoke the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 18 says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. Interesting, the Hebrew word rendered the flashes of lightning in Exodus 20, 18 is the same word that is rendered torch in Genesis 15, 17. Now, it would be, it'd be worth exploring all these connections in more detail, but my only point at the moment is to make it clear by comparing the two passages that the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch do, in fact, represent the presence of God. In Exodus 19 and 20, the God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob drew near to the children of Israel. But long before that ever happened, and yet in a way that would serve as a reference point for that future experience at Mount Sinai, the Lord drew near to Abram and revealed himself as the one who passes between the sacrificial animals. And now we need to ask, what is the significance of the fact that the Lord passed between these pieces? In order to answer this question, we need to be clear. It is not enough to say that the Lord passed between these pieces. We also need to say only the Lord passed between these pieces and Abram did not pass between these pieces. This gets to the heart of the Abrahamic covenant. In a mutual covenant-making act between two parties, 
in a blood covenant, such as what we see here in Genesis, Genesis 15, the standard protocol would have been for both parties to pass through the pieces of the sacrificed animals. And when two parties to a solemn agreement both passed through the pieces and met in the middle, each party would be saying to the other, if I do not fulfill my covenant obligations, then I accept in advance the penalty of being cut in half just like this heifer, this female goat, and this ram. I accept the penalty of being slain just like this turtle dove and young pigeon. When two parties cut a blood covenant in this manner, each party is expressing with utter seriousness about forming and keeping the covenant. Each party is saying, I would rather die than break this covenant. I would rather be crushed to death than to violate my oath or renege on my promise. Each party is saying, let me be accursed if I ever prove unfaithful to my covenant. Now, the thing that stands out about this particular covenant in Genesis chapter 15 is that only the Lord forms the covenant. Only the Lord stands in the midst of the carcasses. Only the Lord makes promises. Only the Lord declares a solemn oath. Only the Lord puts His character on the line. The Lord's decision to walk alone in the midst of the sacrifices effectively communicates to Abram and to us the fulfillment of these promises depends on me. I don't make these promises lightly. The only promises I make are the ones I intend to keep. And the ones that I intend to keep, I make and declare under pain of death. I would rather die than break my covenant promises. I would rather be crushed to death than to violate my oath or renege on my commitment. If I fail to fulfill my covenant obligations, then let me be accursed and torn asunder. I will carry this covenant to completion because of my faithfulness, not yours. The point of all this is to show Abram and to show us that God is completely trustworthy. God's words are utterly reliable. God's promises are entirely dependable. God's gracious covenant is a firm foundation upon which to believe and hope and live. So the real question is, do you trust him? Do you trust the one who would rather die than speak an idle word, an empty word, or a faithless word? Do you trust the one who would rather be broken than to break a promise? How is Abram to know that he and his de descendants shall possess the land? By coming to grips with the fact that God is not like men. God doesn't speak out of two sides of his mouth. God isn't fickle and subject to change. God means business, and his words can be trusted. The covenant-making ritual involving sacrifice communicates to Abram this is how seriously God takes his own words. For God, God's words are a matter of life and death. Trust the Lord. You sleep, but he remains alert to make and keep his covenant. Only trust him. You are weak and subject to death, but he remains alive to watch over and perform his covenant promises. Our passage concludes, fittingly enough, in the same way that it began. In the preamble of verse 7, the Lord had declared his intent to give Abram the land of Canaan. And now in verses 18 to 21, in conjunction with the ratification of the covenant, God reiterates his promise to give the land of Canaan 
to Abram's offspring. Now, there's, there's basically one lesson that I, I want you to take away from this passage, and it's this. God is all in when it comes to keeping his promises. The thing is, is that God's promise-keeping often doesn't unfold and take the shape that we would expect it to take if we're just operating in our own human wisdom. I mean, why did God plan for Israel to sojourn in a foreign land and to experience servitude and face affliction there for centuries? Why? Why did God plan to wait 400 years before fulfilling his promise? Why did God allow Egypt to sin against his people? Why why does God allow the Amorites to continue on and pile up their sins? Why not destroy them now? Why, why, why wait for a few centuries before lowering the bar of judgment? You see, we, we want quick and easy. God doesn't do quick and easy. Do you trust him? God works out his promises over a long, windy path that spans centuries. Do you trust him? God brings judgment and deliverance on his timetable, not ours. Do you trust him? God carries the covenant, not you. Do you trust him? Do you act like you're carrying it? God is always faithful to his covenant, which means that he is not under any curse for covenant breaking. Do you complain or charge him with wrongdoing? Or do you trust him? And do you wait patiently for him to bring his good promises to fruition? God is all in, and his character is the firm foundation and guarantee of all his words. Now, as we come to the New Testament, New Testament, the covenant in Genesis chapter 15 is a powerful backdrop to the formation of the new covenant. As the faithful and trustworthy Lord, the Lord was under no obligation to become like the slain ram that was cut in half and set down in Genesis chapter 15. He kept his word, always full of steadfast love and faithfulness. We are the weak link, the sinful link, the blameworthy link. We are the ones who ought to be crushed to pieces because of our rebellion and unfaithfulness. And yet, the Lord stands alone in the midst of the carcasses, declaring that he takes Full responsibility for the completion of the covenant. And what this means is that he takes responsibility for our covenant breaking. In Genesis chapter 15, the Lord passes through the sacrifice. In the New Testament, the Lord becomes the sacrifice. Not because he ever failed to keep his words, 
but because we often and regularly failed to keep his words. In great mercy, the Lord takes upon himself the consequences of our unfaithfulness. It says, Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The promises of God, the promise of forgiveness, the promise of reconciliation, the promise of a new heart, the promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the promise of eternal life that will never end, the promises of God sealed with the blood of Christ. Brothers and sisters, God still ordains a long and windy path for us We still suffer affliction, suffering, persecution, injustice, loss, pain, death, heartache. How do we know that the Lord will keep His promises? How do we know that the Lord will bring us home and that one day we will be with Him and with all of His redeemed people forever in a new heaven and a new earth? How do we know that? Because He sealed every promise with the shedding of his own blood. God means business. He's all in. You can trust him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the majesty of the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world in order to purchase our redemption and make us your sons and daughters, a kingdom of priests. Father, I pray that you would heal our unbelief, heal our wavering hearts, and grant that we would stand on the firm foundation of your blood-sealed word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.